Morning. Morning to those of you who are online. We had trouble getting started. It wasn't our fault. Somebody else's fault, but we're there now. Glad to have you with us. Hey, before we jump in, I want to uh, add on to what Keith was sharing. Uh, I met with uh, uh, our representative, Andy Foster, from uh, World Vision, who's in Indianapolis. I met with him, had lunch with him on Thursday, and he shared some interesting um, facts with me about ECC. We began to, as a denomination and as a congregation, we began to partner with World Vision in uh, Covenant Kids Congo back in uh, 2012. And um, we held a Hope Sunday on 2012 where we could choose kids to uh, sponsor, and we held one again in 2016. Initially, we had 177 children that ECC was sponsoring. Now we had 114 uh, children that we are sponsoring. Uh, in addition to that, and we're talking about uh, at the lowest number there, more than $50,000 a year is going from ECC to sponsor children. In addition to that, um, we've had other events. So the Global 6K, we've done a few times now. And a 30-hour famine. I'm not sure how many times our youth group has done that, but we've done it a few times. And in those events combined, for clean water, uh, we have raised uh, $25,292 over the years. That's enough for clean water for more than 500 children. So I just want to celebrate that and encourage you to be a part of uh, the Global 6K. <clears throat> you can take part in the Global 6K, or you can help either one. We'd love to have you take part in that. So back in um, the season of Advent, I tried to demonstrate for you, for us, the importance of exile. The importance of exile in the shaping of the Jewish people and how they understood the need for and the coming of the Messiah. Because the theme of exile, it turns out, permeates the whole Bible. It permeates the whole Bible. And once we begin to see it, and once we begin to see ourselves as in an exile of a type, themes, things start to make more sense to us. And, and that theme begins to pop up everywhere. It's like when you decide you're going to buy a new car, suddenly you say, look, everybody's driving that car. When you realize that the theme of exile is all over Scripture, you will see it pop up everywhere. The exile for Judah, which is the southern kingdom where Jer Jerusalem lies and where our passage takes place today, began just before the 6th century B.C. There were two smaller exiles, followed by the third, final, and most drastic one that took place in about 586-587 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, swooped down, conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took the cream of the crop back to Babylon. And that last portion of the exile lasted until about 538 B.C. when they were allowed to return home. During the time of exile, as you can imagine, there were different ways of dealing with the reality of exile. Everyone, most likely, wanted to go home back to the promised land. But they handled it differently. Some sought to fight against their captors. Others simply resigned themselves to, this is the way things are. They may have even uh, given up on God. And still others found a third way, as the folks at the Bible Project rightly name it, a way of loyalty and subversion. Or maybe we could just join these two words together into one concept, subversive loyalty. Subversive loyalty. That is, they sought to get along, even to participate in society in Babylon, culture in Babylon, even to flourish there, and to seek the welfare of the city of Babylon, as Jeremiah had told them to do. But as they did so, they reserved the right, when necessary, to buck the system. 
when the system asked too much of them, when the system crossed a line. It's not all that different from a concept that we talked about several times last fall from the author um, Jacques Philippe, who said that when we are faced, when any of us are faced with a difficult situation, something coming our way, we didn't want to come our way, we have three basic responses, three choices, three ways we can go. We can choose to rebel against these things, we can give in to resignation, or we can practice consent. Rebellion, resignation, or consent. Hint, the goal is to get to consent. The goal is to get to consent. That is, because we believe that God is good, because we know that God loves us, because we know that God is always at work, we consent to working with God, to surrendering to God, amid whatever difficulty comes our way. We choose to trust God rather than rebel against our circumstances or God or resign to things in hopelessness. To consent is true freedom. To consent is true freedom. Subversive loyalty is a type of consent. The prophet Daniel was one of these subversive loyalists. He, along with three of his friends, were chosen by, to serve uh, King Nebuchadnezzar while in exile. That is, they were very loyal to the king, up to a point. They used their gifts and abilities to serve Babylon and its king until they couldn't. So Daniel and his friends flourished in their service. Daniel chapter 1, verse 20 says this, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Then in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a troubling dream, and he challenges his magicians, his enchanters, his sorcerers, and his astrologers to interpret the dream. However, to make sure they are not trying to deceive him, he tells them, not only must you interpret the dream, you need to tell me what it was. You tell me what I dreamed, and then you interpret it. Then I'll listen to you. Well, of course, they can't. Longer story short, the king turns to Daniel, who has a gift for interpreting dreams, or rather, a God who will help him interpret dreams. So during the night, this night of prayer with Daniel and his three friends, the the mystery of the nature of the dream, the content of the dream, and how to interpret it is revealed to Daniel. Daniel then goes to the king and tells him what he has learned from God. Nebuchadnezzar's dream was of an enormous, dazzling statue. Then, verses 32 to 35. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, Daniel says, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom are the head of gold, Daniel says. While the sections of bronze and iron and silver and iron and clay mixed represent other kingdoms that will come after Nebuchadnezzar. In the end, Daniel says, all those kingdoms will be crushed by the rock uncut by human hands. It will fly into the picture like an extinction-level asteroid and smash these kingdoms, and anything that's left of the kingdoms will be swept away by the wind. And that rock, Daniel tells them, is another kingdom that will bring all other kingdoms to an end. It will become a huge mountain that fills the whole earth. Daniel finishes his interpretation this way in verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush 
all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This was a powerful image of the coming kingdom of God. A kingdom having nothing to do with human hands or human ingenuity. One day it will conquer all other kingdoms that came before and it will grow and it will become a huge mountain that will fill the whole earth. Shifting gears. Because you're probably going, what does this have to do with John? This morning we skip way ahead in John's Gospel. If you are receiving the daily scripture emails, you've been assigned um, all that went in between chapter 13, last week's passage, and uh, this morning. And they were long (laughs) passages of scripture. Apologies. Jesus has finished his farewell discourse in which he gave his first disciples some very important instructions because he was aware that his, his betrayal and arrest were coming. Right at the end of that discourse, Jesus prays his high priestly prayer in John 17. And there, Jesus prays a prayer of submission to the Father God, saying, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And by this, as we saw last week, Jesus means that his obedience to death will bring glory to God, and his death on the cross will be the ultimate expression of God's glory, God's true nature, God's universal love, God's self-giving, self-sacrificial love. In John 17, verse 3, And what seems almost like an aside in the midst of this prayer, after acknowledging that he has been given, if Jesus has been given authority to grant eternal life to those who've been given to him, Jesus defines eternal life. Chapter 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus does not limit eternal life to what happens after we die. Rather, Jesus defines eternal life as something we know and experience now. Eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. That is the nature of true eternal life. It begins when we come to know God in Christ, and then it continues throughout eternity. Then Jesus prays for you and me and for all who will come to know him beyond his first followers in chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. Next slide. Is it there? Good. I was afraid I didn't get it. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Us in Christ, Christ in us, complete unity among Christ's followers. All of us. This, Jesus prays, this will be the thing that testifies to the world that God the Father has sent Jesus the Son. This. This prayer for unity as a witness to the good news of the gospel has, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, has never been more necessary than it is right now. Our community, our nation, our world need to see us as one. They need to know it's possible. And they need to know the Spirit of God who makes it all possible. But how will they know if you and I give in to the bickering and the division and the judgmentalism of our culture around us? You see, all of us, sisters and brothers, all of us are either 
contributing to the answer to Jesus' prayer, or we are actively working against it. All of us are either contributing to the answer of Jesus' prayer, or we are actively working against it. See, it turns out that we, too, live in Babylon. And our Babylon needs us to dwell there as subversive loyalists, just as the people of God were called to do in exile. And sadly, one of the most subversive things that we can do right now is to love one another. One of the most subversive things we can do right now is to love one another, to keep the unity of the Spirit with one another. It is subversive because it subverts the whole culture right now. I told you before about a, a small group of pastors that gathered about a year ago. It was arranged by David Henderson, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in West Lafayette. It took place about a week before I left for sabbatical. And in that meeting, each of the pastors, there's only five or six of us, shared about the challenges of the past year for each of us, and we prayed for one another. And at one point, we talked about how many people had left our congregations and on what basis. It was enlightening. I want to honor Pastor Dave Henderson publicly because he has been such an encouragement to me personally over the past year especially. After we had talked a bit about the, the pain of watching people we've pastored for years leave our church and go to another one, often without a word, Dave told us about one of his practices that he engages when people who leave other churches and come to his church. This is something he does whenever people leave other churches and comes to his church. As soon as they divulge that information, so let's say, and this was his example, let's say someone from ECC has left and is now going to covenant. As soon as they divulge that information, Dave says, oh, I love Pastor Stacy." Think about that. Talk about contributing to the answer to Jesus' prayer rather than working against it. This, too, is a subversion of the culture wars. In chapter 18, we begin what is properly referred to as the Passion Narrative, the last week of Jesus' life leading up to his crucifixion. And Jesus and his disciples go to the other side of the Kidron Valley where they enter a garden, and there Judas will betray Jesus. The chief priests and the Pharisees will come bearing torches and lanterns and weapons, and a Roman cohort, which is a military term, Consisting of, uh, it, it consisted of a group of 600 Roman soldiers. Jesus will then be questioned by the high priest Caiaphas. And finally, in our passage for this morning, Jesus is sent to be interrogated by Pilate, the Roman governor. And after some back and forth between the religious leaders, Pilate confronts Jesus directly and he says, Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34. Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. So as I was praying over this larger passage, verses 28 to 40, the words of this verse, verse 36, would not let me go. 
They were provocative and intentional on Jesus' part. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. A more helpful translation is the way the common English Bible puts it. Jesus replied, my kingdom does not originate. My kingdom does not originate from this world. My kingdom isn't from here. Jesus' kingdom doesn't originate from the world. It is not from here. And that makes all the difference. The kingdom of God is not worldly. It is not political in the way that Pilate is concerned. No, it does not come from this world, but it is very much in this world. It does not come from this world, but it is very much in this world. It does not originate here, but here is where it is destined to be, or at least to begin to be. Therefore we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And then I want us to notice two words in that last sentence. But now, but now my kingdom is from another place. At first we may pass right over those two words, but they are in the Greek. But now, that is right now, in the present, my kingdom The kingdom over which I reign, it isn't from here. It's from somewhere else. And it's already here. It's already here. From the coming of Jesus all the way up into this present moment, the kingdom, this kingdom, this reality is present. It's now. It's not only off in the future somewhere, but now. That means something. That that means that those two words, but now, are simultaneously a threat and an invitation. Those two words, but now, simultaneously a threat and an invitation. And I wonder, I wonder if Jesus in that moment is thinking of Daniel chapter 2. That's why I started where I started. (laughs) Daniel chapter 2. Where earthly kingdoms are stacked up like iron and bronze and gold and silver and feet of clay. And out of the corner of his mind does he see a giant rock uncut by human hands hurtling through the air ready to smash all these rival kingdoms. This kingdom will grow. It will fill the earth with justice, peace, and the unparalleled presence of God that will endure forever. Now, John nor Jesus use the term kingdom in John's gospel very often. The word only appears five times in the whole gospel in two passages. Three of them are in our passage. It's hidden a bit by the word it in the NIV, but three times the word kingdom appears here. In Matthew's gospel, the word kingdom, uh, by comparison, occurs 53 times. In Mark, 18 times. In Luke, 44 times. So what's going on here? John favors Jesus' use of the imagery of life over kingdom language, eternal life, abundant life. But the truth is, these terms mean pretty much the same thing, theologically speaking. It's almost as if John knew that the term kingdom could be misunderstood, so he chose to emphasize abundant, eternal life instead. And we can even hear this potential misunderstanding of kingdoms in John 18. Right after Jesus speaks about the nature of his kingdom, we read this in verse 37. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. See, it's not so much that Jesus is saying, yep, that's me. You got it. I'm the king. I think he's saying, well, that's your word for it. 
That's your word for it. You call me king, but I mean something more than that word can handle. It's all about truth. What I'm offering you, what I'm offering everyone, Jesus says, is truth. Pilate clearly did not understand what Jesus meant by kingdom. Many of the Jewish leaders of the day did not understand this concept of kingdom in the way that Jesus intended it. So maybe John, who is writing likely as many as 60 years or more after the resurrection, maybe John has chosen not to place the emphasis on the word or the imagery of kingdom. It's too easily misunderstood. Maybe the abundant eternal life will be better understood. And so John changes his emphasis. Pilate certainly did not seem to catch Jesus' meaning. He's going after the wrong thing. He's just doing his job, but in doing so, he misses the point. Jesus has just told him that his kingdom was not from here. It originates elsewhere. And he's told him that it's already present. Now, it seems to me that if you're Pilate, and Jesus says these things to you, the very next question out of your mouth should be, where is it? What is it? I mean, that's the million-dollar question, right? So there are two doors standing in front of Pilate, and one of those doors is open. It's the door to truth. It's the door to abundant, eternal life. Life in another kingdom from another place. Pilate could have walked through that door, but he didn't. He chose to go through the other door. The one where he's just doing his job. Instead of asking about the nature of Jesus' kingdom, he simply said, so you are a king then. He opened the wrong door. He chose poorly. After Jesus tells us that the reason he came was to testify to the truth and that those who are really interested in truth will listen to him, we discover that Pilate can't handle the truth. Verse 38, what is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at, a, at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. And then John adds, now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Did you catch that? Barabbas. The one the people want released, Barabbas is guilty of the very thing Pilate was concerned about with Jesus, but Jesus is innocent. Jesus becomes the Passover lamb who is slain so that Barabbas, the revolutionary, the rebel, the guilty one, can go free. It's a picture. It's a picture of the gift that Jesus has given all of us. First of all, in terms of salvation and forgiveness of sin that Christ's death and resurrection have brought us. We are the guilty ones, yet we go free. And second, because not only is our eternal destiny secure because of Jesus' death and resurrection, but now we can freely enter into his kingdom now. We can experience life to the full, abundant life, eternal life now. And I know it seems like that's all I talk about anymore because, well, that's all I talk about anymore. 
But this life to the full, I believe, is a word that God has given to me for a season. It's a word that God has given me for a season. And once you grasp that, once you see it, once you taste it, even just a little bit, it starts to pop up everywhere. The pages of Scripture come alive in a whole new way, on a deeper level. And I talk about life to the full in the here and now a lot because it's what God wants for all of us. And I, as your pastor, carry very much about how you experience God, that you experience everything God has for you. So I talk about it a lot. We may already know Christ. We may already know that our sins have been forgiven. Our salvation is not in question. However, the two doors still stand before us as they stood before Pilate. Will we simply stand on the outside of the kingdom, peering in the windows, occasionally stopping to crack the door open maybe a little bit, just doing our jobs, just getting by, just asking the wrong questions? Or will we live within God's kingdom fully? Will we knock on the door and step through that door as it is open to us? Will we discover the presence of God, the joy of God, the life of God, the power of the Holy Spirit alive within us and through us? Will we walk the journey from mere curiosity about the kingdom to an ever-transforming life of Christiformity within the kingdom? Which will it be for you? Which door will you go through? Put yet another way. The kingdom is a vision for God's future that we are privileged to live in now. The kingdom is a vision of God's future that we are privileged to get to live into even now. And it is God's intended climactic event to all of history when what God wants done will be done everywhere in every way all the time. And we get to live into it now. If you currently receive the daily scripture emails this, this week, you're going to be asked simply to pray through several of Jesus' parables of the kingdom. Much briefer than what I sent you this past week. If you do not receive that email, you can. Just click on the communication card button in your Bible app live event. And once you've uh, let us know you're present for worship, which we also appreciate, you can check the box that says you would like to get that daily scripture email. Or you can go to ecclife.net slash scripture, scroll down to the, to the button for daily scripture emails, Click that button, and uh, you'll, you can be asked to be put on the list. So, <clears throat> I'm going to do something this morning that you rarely hear, hear a preacher say. I don't think I've ever said it. As we close, I want to confess to you that those of us who deal in words sometimes find that words fail us sometimes discover that we can't find the words. That is where I'm ending this morning. I do not have the words to adequately, let alone perfectly, describe to you what is available to you even now. I do not have those words. Partly because I haven't experienced that life to the full enough yet to have those words. And partly because when it comes to such things as this, Words are too finite, too limited. So instead, we close with two things. A very short passage of scripture that speaks to this, and prayer. 
The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Would you join me in a moment of silence, and then I'll close in prayer. God, I thank you that you are present this morning with us. You are always with us. My prayer is for all of us that we will sense and know your presence in a powerful way in this moment when I don't know what to say, when I don't have the words to adequately speak of all that you have for us. God, would you communicate it to our spirits? God, would you create in us a hunger that only you can satisfy, a thirst that only you can satisfy. God, would you give us a vision of a next step we can take? And Lord, we know that we cannot make this happen. We cannot earn this. It is a gift from you. So I pray that we would be prepared to receive it, to taste it, to experience it, and to know it on a deep and profound level. Lord, would you this day arrest our minds and our hearts with your beauty, your goodness, your presence, your love, your devotion, your commitment, with all that you have for us, Lord God. Would you today arrest our minds and our hearts and our spirits and our lives and our relationships with something that would speak to us of what you have for us. Help us to see it. Help us to cry out for it. And help us to receive it when you give it to us. And may you receive all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name.